0: Hi everyone, this is Colleen with Food and Nutrition Security Team at Care USA, uh, and I have joining me today Walter, who is Chief of Party for our Shohardo program in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Hi, Walter. Hi, Colleen. Let's get started. Would you be able to provide a little bit of context for the failure that we're going to be talking about today?
1: Shohardo 3 is a third iteration of the Shohardo kind of brand, which has been a largely a very successful program for both care and USAID, Food for Peace. Since 2004, we, as a program, have been able to become a testing ground, but an opportunity to showcase some of the really uh, compelling ideas that work for not just anybody, but especially for care women, who through the work we've done which, or in the past, we've been able to bring out compelling evidence about how women empowerment is a big determinant of stunting outcomes for children. And also been able to put forward evidence or knowledge around how to build resilience for women in the face of shocks like we have in Bangladesh. So that's Shohada. In this third iteration, there's quite a number of exciting things that we're doing. And one of those would be the youth work that was uh, introduced right after the program had kicked off. So it wasn't in the original proposal, but we were able to do a quick analysis and acknowledge how much we did not have a clear way to reach the youth, and especially the rural poor youth, both boys and girls, just because the program initially didn't have that set of activities. So we negotiated with USAID and they allowed us to bring on a component for youth programming. And that's what we're going to be talking about our journey through that. So the youth component came on and we were able to develop through two activities we were able to do a labor market assessment to look at what opportunities there were and look at how the youth, specifically the rural poor, could connect with those specific opportunities. So kind of we call it the demand and the supply side of both employment, but also self and wage employment. we were able to develop a strategy which the team was quite clear. And I think we were all excited. We got a consultant to come in and do this. And then had uh, our CARE U.S. Uh, education team support us with developing the strategy. And so we l- rolled it out and hired staff, put in resources, budgets, activities for it. And we're all excited about doing all this youth work. It's cutting-edge development anywhere in the world currently We were right on our good journey until... I would say probably two, three months down the implementation, we kind of began hearing concerns by our partners and our field-based teams that there is not enough youth. We cannot find youth to do the to join the program. And that was a little confusing because with a population of about forty five percent youth, zero to twenty-four years of age, being the young people in this country, why would you not find youth in the households or in the villages that we are working on. Through persuasion, we kept the team engaged and would ask, you know, what approaches are we using? How are we trying to reach to these people? And so it sounded like it was more of an understanding and every time we would resolve an issue, we'd hope that fixes it. So we would get into conversations with the field-based staff. Oftentimes, the conversations would end up with, okay, fine, why don't you try this approach? So we knew that we were lagging behind in terms of percentages. We were looking at reaching about 10,000 youth, but two years in, we only had come to only 1,400. And so it wasn't making sense. We are offering training opportunities for employment, When I go out to the villages and other staff, they would come back, yes, youth are very excited. People want to do this with us. It wasn't until the midterm that we began to fully understand what exactly was going on. It was very clear from the findings by our consultants and backing up what we were seeing that the strategy was one of the greatest that they had seen but it was also clear that it wasn't being done. And the reason it wasn't being done is because we had four components in the strategy. So we had a vocational training component where youth would go to training centers from the Department of Youth Development in Bangladesh. And in those departmental kind of institutions, they would be receiving training on areas like electric, Uh, wiring, masonry, and all that. Very well clear and set out. And this was, I would say, the most expensive part of the training. The other component was apprenticeships and internships that was being done in villages. And here, youth would identify a trade that they would be interested in. And so they'd go and we would support them to find A potential employer, work with them, an agreement to spend time learning on how to do that. The other component was supporting youth, either from the trainings or those who had some skills to develop their own businesses, really supporting people to become self-employed The last component was develop training modules for youth who are unable to travel to different locations. And mostly this would be for the younger girls because mobility is an issue in Bangladesh. Uh, Often women don't get to go so far away from their villages. And so the activities we did with this particular group was to define local service training modules that they would learn skills like for the ready government, for their own, also self-employment, but things like tailoring and really add value to them being competitive in whatever they pick up on. To no surprise, the most expensive got the most attention. The reason we were not able to find 10,000 youth is our partners were very much focused on identifying young men and women that were willing to go to district training centers. Women would struggle to leave their homes. Young men who are set in up families or are just off schools, maybe not qualified for colleges, were unable to see why they would leave their villages and go and spend six months, you know, learning something that there was no job guarantee. How they looked at it was, you know, I'm leaving my farm or my parents' farm, or I'm leaving my family if I'm a girl, and I'm not sure where I'm going. You know, it's a difficult place. The reality was the target for this vocational training was the smallest, about 25%. So 2,500 would be the life of activity target. But that's where all the efforts were. So all the efforts were being put into generating that particular number to get everyone going into colleges. People didn't go to the colleges, neither was there any apprenticeships and neither was there any localized trainings being developed because we couldn't find the 2,500. So everything was focused on the 2,500.
0: How would you say uh, you and the team moved past this implementation failure that was identified in this midterm evaluation report?
1: Obviously, a midterm evaluation that tells you that you have a great strategy that doesn't that wasn't implemented is not one of the best things in my position. I and mean, if you're any development worker that you know what you need to do, you have it and you're not doing it. So it was a really really wake up call for us and we in principle had to go back to the communities first to figure out is there really absence of youth and the answer was quickly no of course there's enough youth in the villages and so why weren't they engaged it turned out that the biggest issue for our partners was they kind of focused on the heavy budget items because that would move their expenditures faster and also because it was a harder thing to do that's where all the efforts went and so what we decided to do is go back and kind of retrain the partners and our own staff and reorient the communities again on that this particular component was just part of it and why it had broken, we believe, was two things. One, obviously, the focus on the heavy budget items, but we also realized soon that we did not necessarily have the right manpower or manpower human resource to be able to push through this kind of activity, which was new to the program. It may have been great and, you know, cutting edge, but it's new. So it was kind of a little difficult for people to leave their traditional roles and give this the same effort and focus. So we did have to recruit a senior technical coordinator to lead this and appoint specific staff within the partners that will take the responsibility. And I mean, I wouldn't say we've picked up 100%, but there's definitely a lot going on in the apprenticeships, in the localized trainings, and some of the other work that had totally just not taken off at all.
0: If you could do this differently, you know, starting in, what is one or two clear actions that you would have changed? One of the
1: big things for me, and it's a learning that we've had as we reflect on the many failures we have in Shohando. I hate to say we have many failures. I'm sure people are excited about this program, but we do fail and we do fail a lot, is that we do acknowledge two things that sometimes just because of the pressure to do work, it's easy to not listen to what's coming up the chain. So the whole feedback conversation right from the top down to the lowest levels of implementation. So a project manager who would receive my phone call would be asked what's going on with the numbers. His conversation with a lower level, and this is partner staff, would likely be pushing them to achieve their target. But that phone call hasn't had what the guy hasn't done. So in principle, everyone was struggling, but we didn't realize we were struggling on just one strand and nobody was focusing on the other three. So just because the communication was one way without the reflections on what's missing, we definitely ended up not getting clear feedback that yes, you're struggling, but you're only struggling with. 25% of what you could be doing. There's still a whole 75% that's ready and waiting, but nobody's giving that attention. It took that process of figuring out how to hear more from the ground upwards and bring that into the conversations. Because in that, we would figure out, okay, yes, it's broken, but it's broken in this area, and this is what you need to fix, as opposed to seeing the whole as, as a broken system.
0: That's a really great example. Expanding on that a little more, If you could recommend one action to other care, colleagues, projects, even partner organizations or government based on this experience, what would you have to say to them?
1: When you have communication that seems to be more directive, even though it's a question, it's very likely that the responses come to suit a certain desired goal or result. The one thing that we are really learning and working on is figuring out what's the culture that we create that enables people to speak to even things that are not necessarily being requested and be able to identify those gaps. So, at a program level, we increasingly definitely are having. Uh, repeated conversations on failing forward. Every big, significant uh, staff conversation includes a session where we identify a gap and ask staff to reflect on why they feel that we don't speak a a lot about why or areas that we are not having optimal uh, success or progress in in the things that we do. And those conversations open us up to a number of things that I think I would just highlight a few that come off the top of my head. I mean, we have reports that we can share. But one of the things that I think has really come up is just the culture that we are so cultured to not admit that we failed. And so if, for example, I didn't make it to the office on time, it's very easy to talk about traffic, which I know traffic is in the street every single day. And so I blame traffic, but traffic is always there. So how about I didn't wake up on time? So at the end of the day, we're kind of trying to create an ownership where something doesn't work and as opposed to seeing the other as potentially the problem we kind of like to push it outside ourselves it's not because we don't admit there's a failure it's because because it's almost like a cutthroat competition where I need to perform because there's thousands of other people that are almost waiting in line for this job. So that there's a pressure to perform and that pressure creates a sense of admitting a failure weakens that position, doesn't give me the space to grow and to be maybe promoted or get an opportunity. And so we kind of want to find ways to tuck away failure. We use these processes to really say, okay, fine, so if this is what why we cannot talk about What would be some of the ways within teams as an individual, we can support each other to acknowledge failure? And one of the most interesting moments has been to find a way of rewarding failure and failure, not because somebody failed, but because somebody was brave enough to define a certain failure that helps move a certain concept or process forward a little more precisely. And that involves admitting the part that they felt. And so using that as a method where we create that opportunity for sharing those and not feeling that this is a bad thing for me to talk about, because the cost of not doing it means that we just keep repeating the same thing. We know it's not optimal. Chances I have an idea how I can do it better. But if I'm going to say that it would have worked better if I did, then maybe another person will also fill in another piece. And sooner than later, we can begin to see, again, going back to my youth example, that partners felt the pressure to spend and burn their budgets. Their field staff felt the pressure to do what their managers wanted them to achieve, which is ban- budget burn rates. While within care, what you are looking for is numbers, percentages of targets reaching as many youth. So you can already see a disconnect. And so if we had the conversation about, well, we're not burning money because the kind of trainings we can do now are not the ones that are burning the money. That would have changed that dynamic quite quickly. From the other side, we are seeing a lack of progress. So the two are not necessarily the same thing, but just because we're not bringing the gaps or the failures or the issues together, then we just have this situation where it doesn't work. It sounds to us like it's more of a jigsaw that has different players who have to acknowledge where there are weaknesses, and putting that together would really help move us forward.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You spoke to embracing these failures to really enhance our culture um, and the success of our programs. And I'm wondering if you have any comments or words of wisdom on how we can really use the lessons from this failure in particular, and just generally, how we can use that to improve our impact.
1: I gave an example, which is about a project output, but I think one of the things that uh, we are also embracing in our work is accepting that there's just not one alternative. And so one of the things that are not embracing failure or most of the times, you know that we could have achieved more and you know that we could have talked about this. Maybe it was how our workshop was scheduled. Maybe it was a location could have been done better. So if you can have those conversations, what it creates for us is a momentum of exploring alternatives. Mm -hmm. And acknowledging that some of them may be risky, but if you know what you're trying to achieve and there's a certain culture that accepts that, then it's obviously very likely that we will begin to see more ideas without the challenge of any new idea is likely to be faced with opposition, not even because it failed, but people are so concerned about the failure points that they will not even see the opportunity points within the same idea. And so we don't take risks. We do not calculate those risks and say, Well, I may lose two thousand dollars here, but if it works, well that's going to be in terms of return on investment, potentially two hundred thousand for the community or something. I would say it's always that tension and as a manager or as anybody doing any investments, you, you kind of want to figure out what's a logical way of doing this that doesn't jeopardize, say, your donor relations or with government or with community and create that space because it's in everything. It's in how we do things. It's how we structure our workplaces. It's how we write proposals. It's how we even hold community meetings. So I think we need to create a sense of appetite for risk.
0: Final comments or thoughts that you wanted to share?
1: I've been following the whole phase forward conversations on the workplace and some of the things that kind of get generated in the industry and I would say it's it's really time that people, have I feel that we are all in that momentum where it's been acknowledged. What I feel that we don't necessarily do, and we've been trying to figure out how do you make this actual in the workplace? Because there's always that risk of talking about it like I just have. But I would imagine a staff who potentially came up and said, you know, I failed in this area because of this. Chances are the first reaction isn't really to say, oh, great job. Thank you for failing. You know, it's, it's likely to be pushing back and saying, you know, We needed to see you be a bit more proactive. So creating that space, uh, which really starts right from the top of a unit or an organization or a project, is a real challenge for us. And to be meaningful in these conversations, it will start with somebody being late. And we say that failing without learning is final. But if you're failing and bringing anything out of it, figuring out, oh, tomorrow I need to do this or I need to leave earlier... I need to avoid this kind of buses because they always get stuck. You know, that's a process. And so if someone comes and says, well, I'm late, but I'm late for this reason, I tried this. I mean, that's something that we should embrace. And it's only then that that would translate to ideas in the workplace, in the field with our participants on the projects, as opposed to seeing this as somebody who is perpetually late. Can we generate that kind of appetite for failures who learn our a thousand attempts to get the light bulb glowing? I think that's what we really need to ask ourselves.
0: You know, I think that's a really great call to action for us to end on today. So thank you for that.